Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. We have something special for you today. It is another lecture from Bishop Barron. This is one he recently gave at Kenrick Glennon Seminary. It was part of the Kenrick Lecture Series, and Bishop Barron gave a talk titled, Knocking Holes in the Buffered Self, Approaches to the Questions of God. We're going to listen to the first half of the talk today, which focuses on this concept of the buffered self, which gets its name from Charles Taylor, the great Catholic philosopher. The buffered self refers to someone who's cut off from the transcendent, someone who has become disenchanted with the cosmos and is generally ambivalent or indifferent to supernatural things. It has many manifestations in our culture, including things like scientism, materialism, our culture of self-invention. But the question for us is, how do we help someone escape this buffered self? How do we engage in the hard work of soul doctoring, expanding their mind and their soul to the possibility of God? That's what Bishop Barron focuses on in this lecture. It's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And again, we're going to share the first half with you today. And then in a couple weeks, we'll share the second half. Before we do, though, I wanted to tell you about yet another exciting book from Word on Fire. This one, for many of us here, is kind of the pinnacle publication of the new year. We've been working on it for many, many months. It's titled The Word on Fire Vatican II Collection. The Word on Fire Vatican II Collection. We're just announcing it today. You can learn more at the website wordonfire.org slash Vatican II, wordonfire.org slash Vatican II. This book is a gorgeous deluxe hardcover volume that includes the four major constitutions from the Second Vatican Council. So Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, featured 16 final documents, but these four are the most important, the most central, if you will, for understanding what Vatican II was all about. There's lots of debate and discussion about Vatican II today, um, even 50-plus years after the Council concluded, and yet it's still a fact that many Catholics simply haven't read these documents. They haven't read Dei Verbum on Scripture, or Lumen Gentium on the Church, or Gaudium et Spes on the Church in the Modern World, or Sacrosanta Concilium, which is on the Divine Liturgy. The beauty of our volume, this Word on Fire Vatican II collection, is that it not only includes those four texts, but you'll also find interspersed around the text commentary from Bishop Barron and the four post-Vatican II popes. So these would include St. Paul VI, St. John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis. So you're reading these documents from the heart of the church, and you're getting an authentic, authoritative, magisterial interpretation of what these texts do and don't mean. So if you're confused about them or find them a little difficult to get into, this commentary will really make them come alive. It's arranged similarly to our Word on Fire Bible. So if you like the experience of reading the Word on Fire Bible, this book does the same thing for the texts of Vatican II. So again, really exciting to announce this. Uh, It's called the Word on Fire Vatican II Collection, and you can pick up your copy by visiting the website wordonfire.org slash Vatican II. Well, with that, we'll move on to the first half of Bishop Barron's talk titled Knocking Holes in the Buffered Self. Enjoy.
Wonderful to see all of you. I was with the students earlier today. That was a wonderful opportunity for me just to hear your questions and respond. Great to see everyone tonight. I want to say a very special word of greeting to your new Archbishop. Um, I've known your Archbishop since I was about 20 years old. We lived on the same uh, corridor at Theological College at Catholic U. So I've known Archbishop Mitch for a long time, and you're lucky to have him there. So greetings to him and greetings to the faculty and to the staff, to the board at Kenrick. I'll tell you, I'm glad we have the chance to be together, at least in this virtual way tonight. But I very much regret not being able to be with you in person, because though I'm from Chicago and I've been to St. Louis many times, I've never been to the campus of Kenrick. And I was very eager to see this famous seminary. So have me back, please. I'm glad to be with you tonight in this way, but do have me back sometime so I can see you personally and see that great place. So my talk tonight is called Knocking Holes in the Buffered Self, Approaches to the Question of God. Anyone who's been following my work over the years knows that I've been preoccupied with the question of the unaffiliated. That is to say, the army of those people, especially the young, who have absented themselves from the practice of the faith and from church attendance. There's simply no way to avoid the conclusion that the Christian churches, at least in the West, are facing a practically unprecedented crisis of disaffiliation. In the early 1970s, so when I was a kid, roughly 3% of our country would have claimed the status of none, N-O-N-E, when asked about religious affiliation. Today, that number has climbed to an astonishing 26%. And among those under 30, the numbers are worse still, reaching 40%. One need not be an expert in statistics to discern this does not bode well for the future of the church. Now, when asked why they've disaffiliated, and they've been asked in numerous surveys, the nuns give a variety of reasons, but consistently chief among them is they've simply lost confidence in the teaching of Christianity. Several months ago, I participated in a Reddit AMA. I told the students about this a few hours ago. Reddit being one of the most popular websites in the world, a forum for the exchange of ideas, and AMA standing for Ask Me Anything. In its open-ended format, it's not entirely unlike a quadlibital question from the medieval universities, though I think I can guarantee you the quadlibitals were less obscene than the Reddit forum. After sorting through the literally tens of thousands of questions that surfaced in the course of that session, mind you, largely from young men 18 to 30 would use Reddit. But after surveying those thousands of questions, it became clear that by far, the number one concern of young skeptics and seekers is the issue of God's existence. Thousands of times I heard the challenge, sometimes aggressive, but I'd say more often plaintive. How do we know there is a God? Please do not believe commentators that tell you that intellectual questions are not important for the unaffiliated today, or that accompanying them is somehow irreconcilable with the engagement of their doubts. I can assure you that those who argue along these lines simply haven't accompanied many young people. A word now about the buffered self, that term from my title. In his magisterial, The Secular Age, 
the Canadian Catholic philosopher Charles Taylor, constructs a complex narrative designed to explain the intriguing fact that in 18, or in, rather in 1500, practically everyone in the West believed in God. And today, again in the West, God's non-existence is taken as a very lively option by a considerable number of people. To make this claim a bit more precise, many contemporary people hold something that their early modern forebears would have found unthinkable. Namely, that the good life can be had apart from any relationship to a transcendent reality. Now, tracing all the lines of Taylor's complex and sinuous analysis would take us way too far afield, but I want to draw attention to one particularly pivotal insight that sheds considerable light, I think, on the present situation. Taylor insists that the self that existed in the West, certainly until 1500, and to a large degree up until very recent times, could be characterized as a porous self, which is to say, open to the influence of a supernatural or transcendent order of things. Whereas the self that obtains within the secular space today might be described, he says, as buffered, cut off from that transcendent realm, or perhaps, to state it more accurately, indifferent to it, convinced, again, that its fulfillment can be found in what Taylor calls an exclusive humanism. Now, one rather obvious form that this buffering takes is the rejection of a naively enchanted universe, inhabited by sprites and goblins and spiritual agents both malign and benevolent. One might think here of even such hyper-sophisticated pre-modern thinkers as Origin of Alexandria and Thomas Aquinas, both of whom took for granted the view that angels are responsible for the movement of the planets. Now, I don't think for a moment it would be a desideratum to return to that pre-scientific worldview. However, there is a far more deleterious disenchantment of the world, which amounts to a rejection of the contingent universe's connection to a transcendent cause or source. Along with many others, I think of John Milbank, Louis Dupre, Brad Gregory, others, I've argued that this disjunction followed from a loss of the analogical conception of being and the consequent compromising of a participation metaphysics. The rather clear result of this disconnect is an ideological materialism and at the epistemic level, a scientism, which is to say the reduction of all knowledge to the scientific form of knowledge. There's no doubt that the astonishing success of the physical sciences and the life-enhancing value of their concomitant technology have contributed mightily to this view. Since the sciences have, it seems, been so thoroughly capable of explaining the world, and since their technologies have made our lives so much longer and more comfortable, why, many young people ask, would we even bother to explore other paths of knowledge? And why would we not appreciate phenomena previously seen as spiritual or transcendental the soul, the arts, the longing for meaning, moral commitment, as simply epiphenomenal, the effluvia of brain, nerves, and evolutionary impulses. In point of fact, this latter reductionist perspective has been very effectively propagated in the popular culture by the so-called new atheists. Another consequence of the buffering of the self is what I've termed the culture of self-invention. The roots of this worldview are certainly in Nietzsche's will to power, 
but also in Sartre's prioritization of essence over existence. And perhaps especially in Foucault's insistence that truth claims typically come down to displays of power. The upshot of all this high philosophical speculation is that one's capacity to determine through freedom the meaning of one's own life is now the default position of practically every teenager in the West. Any proposal of a norm that ought to govern freedom or an objective value that ought to be incorporated into one's subjectivity is routinely unmasked today as simply a ploy of a domination system. So, scientism, ideological materialism, the self-invention culture, all of which are predicated upon the assumption of God's non-existence, have effectively locked many people, especially the young, into the stuffy confines of the buffered self. And this is not a matter of merely academic concern, for this cutting off of a living connection to the transcendent does enormous damage to the soul. And I can see the effects of it practically every day in my ministry to seekers, doubters, and enemies of religion. Armies of people today are straining to convince themselves that an exclusive humanism is adequate to their deepest desires. But their restless hearts, thank you, Father Rector, for the reference to Augustine, their restless hearts say otherwise. I'm convinced that the needful thing, therefore, is to knock holes in the buffered self, letting in the light of the transcendent. You know, during the many years I was professor at Mundelein Seminary, I would speak of the soul-doctoring quality of our theological and spiritual traditions. Prior to the split between spirituality and theology, bemoaned, by the way, by Hans Urs von Balthasar as the greatest tragedy in the history of the Church, so prior to that split, the most important theologians were the spiritual masters and vice versa. Think of Irenaeus, Chrysostom, Augustine, Maximus, Anselm, Bernard, Thomas, many others. For it was taken for granted that the doctrines of Christianity are productive of a manner of life, that they are intended to heal and order that most fundamental dimension of the self that we call the soul. I'm continually amazed at the enduring presence of Plato's parable of the cave in contemporary culture. One thinks, for example, of Ray Bradbury's novel, Fahrenheit 451, or of C.S. Lewis's fantasy story, The Last Battle, or such films as The Truman Show, and probably most significantly, The Matrix Trilogy. In all these narratives, someone trapped in a metaphysically superficial world manages to escape from his constraints and to make a journey to a higher, more densely real and beautiful mode of existence. In all these archetypal tales, as in the Platonic original, the limited perception of the main characters is a function of a severe restriction imposed upon them from the beginning. And heightened perception is the consequence of a necessarily painful and disconcerting liberation. In Plato's telling, the emancipated prisoner who's left the cave and seen the world outside as well as the sun that is the ultimate provider of the light, returns to his former colleagues, but appears now a comical figure, stumbling his way through the dark, unable to perceive clearly even the shadows that formerly beguiled him. 
See, everybody, for many today, I think this is the religious person making his or her way through the secularized world, moving among buffered selves. She is seen more than they, and she wants to draw them toward her vision. But they can only hear her stories as fantasy, and they can only mock her as someone hopelessly out of touch with reality. I mean, how relevant that is to the situation today. My many years of experience in the fields of cultural analysis and evangelization have taught me that the sole doctoring of the buffered self is sorely needed, and that the church is perhaps the privileged agent of this ministration. So what I'm proposing to do now in the, in the heart of this paper is to revisit this great issue of making a reasonable case for God, but not just out of academic interest, but precisely in interest of soul doctoring. Think of the Pope's um, field hospital image. So, approaching God. I found in the course of my uh, theological and evangelical work that many skeptical questions concerning God are often generated by a fundamental misunderstanding of the meaning of the word God. To state it more positively, many dilemmas and conundrums are cleared up the moment a person comes to grasp what serious Christians mean by the term. We do not intend by the word God one finite reality among many, not the supreme being in any conventional sense of that term. We intend, rather, that which brought and indeed brings the whole of finite reality into being, that which transcends even as it remains intimately close to all that can possibly be seen or measured. In Thomas Aquinas' language, God is not so much en sumum, right, highest being, as ipsum esse, subsistent being itself. Once this is clear, the concerns of, of many atheists, I think both old and new, to find evidence for the existence of an elusive denizen of the universe, one cause fussily interfering with the nexus of condition causality, is revealed as simply silly. But even if we accept the correct definition of the word, is there any rational warrant for believing in the existence of this peculiar reality? Well, as you know, the Catholic Church has long maintained that the existence of God can be known through the light of natural reason. And there is indeed biblical warrant for this. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, says Psalm 19. And his invisible attributes have been able to be understood and perceived in what he's made, famously in Romans 1.20. And some of our greatest theologians and philosophers have indeed formulated arguments for the existence of God, most famously Anselm and Aquinas. Furthermore, the First Vatican Council, 1870, clearly teaches that God's existence can be known through the exercise of our rational faculties. But, you know, the best of our traditions always maintain that this knowledge has nothing to do with controlling God or reducing God to an easily understood object of the mind. Augustine articulates a basic intuition of Christian theology when he says, Si comprehendus non est Deus. If you understand, that's not God. And Thomas Aquinas speaks, for instance, not typically of proofs for God, but rather of 
vie, or paths to God, and of manuduciones, leadings by the hand, by which a mind is brought to a consideration of God's existence. No one of our great masters ever taught that these demonstrations provide anything like an exhaustive or adequate account of God. But they do, nevertheless, point us in the right direction. And especially for people today, that is no small thing. So let me look now briefly at a few of these paths. The first one I'm calling the way or the path of intelligibility. The principal challenge to religious belief is coming today from, as I said, a materialist and secularist ideology that often claims the warrant of the physical sciences. This is the view that reality is simply coterminous with the realm of changeable matter. So clearly on these grounds, belief in God is ruled out of court as fantastic. As a first response, we might observe that this sort of ideological materialism is self-refuting. For the claim that reality is reducible to the material cannot be justified on purely scientific grounds. One cannot determine through the scientific method that said method is the only way to access reality. Nonetheless, many people, especially among the young, are beguiled by the undoubted success of the physical sciences into accepting this scientific epistemology. Therefore, I think in approaching the question of God today, it might be wise to begin precisely with this scientific worldview. Now, I'd certainly not recommend, in this context, the embrace of so-called intelligent design speculation, whereby God is construed as an intervening cause required to account for certain forms of irreducible complexity in some living things. Not only is the biology behind such speculation questionable, but the notion of God undergirding it is deeply inadequate. In the measure that it posits God as a cause among many, intervening in natural processes. Nor would I enthusiastically recommend taking up arguments from the supposed fine tuning of the universe in the direction of the emergence first of life and then of consciousness. I say this not because I think there's no merit whatsoever to these arguments, I think there is, but I fear once again that the God they present is somewhat misleading or inadequate. The creator of the entire universe is not one cause, however intelligent and powerful, who intervenes or in a, peculiar, in a peculiar manner in the functioning of the world. Both the intelligent design and fine-tuning arguments, I think, betray a bit too much of their provenance in the deism of the Enlightenment. However, there is a path that emerges from the world of science that I would indeed recommend. This is the argument that commences from the mystical fact of the universe's radical intelligibility. Every science is predicated finally on the supposition that the world that the scientist goes out to meet through her senses and her curious critical intelligence is marked by form, pattern, and understandability. Whether we're talking about the practitioners of psychology, biology, chemistry, astrophysics, or geology, every scientist must assume objective intelligibility. The medievals expressed this idea with their typical pith, ends as shibile, being is knowable. They also held that there exists so deep a correlation between the searching mind and the intelligible object that when they meet in the act of knowledge, each, as it were, actualizes the other. 
Each finds its purpose in the other, something like the two halves of the mythic figures from Plato's story of human origins in the symposium. Of course, the philosophers of the classical period knew this truth as well. Pythagoras opined that everything is number, by which he meant marked by order, harmony, and measurable proportion. In fact, Plato took this truth to be so basic that he required its acceptance by any prospective student in his academy. And contemporary scientists implicitly affirm it at every turn as they use the most sophisticated mathematics to describe dynamics of reality at all levels. They speak indeed of the laws, or at least the statistical probabilities that govern the biological and astronomical orders, but they also assume that even the most basic levels of being, invisible to the naked eye and accessible only through indirect indications, are governed by something like mathematical principles. In the words of Cambridge particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, I'm quoting now, it is an actual technique of discovery in fundamental physics to seek theories which are expressed in terms of what mathematicians can recognize and agree to be beautiful equations. See how strange that is, that that should be the case. Though we take this principle, again, unprovable through the method that thoroughly presupposes it, though we take it utterly for granted, the more we stare at it, the stranger it seems. Why should the world, in every nook and cranny and as a totality, be marked by intelligibility? Why should the scientific enterprise be undertaken with such confidence as it clearly is? Furthermore, why should its findings inform such remarkably successful practical projects? I've continually been amazed at the number of atheist and agnostic commentators who are content simply to accept this astonishing state of affairs as dumbly given, as somehow just the way things are. But Paul Davies challenged his scientific peers with the simple and penetrating question, where do the laws of nature come from? Einstein himself once quipped, I'm quoting, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's so comprehensible. Now, in his indispensable introduction to Christianity, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, argued that the only finally satisfying explanation for objective intelligibility is something like a great intelligence that embedded these sophisticated patterns into the structure of the universe. Ratzinger observes how our language reflects this in intuition. We speak of recognition of truths, which is to say recognition, thinking again what has already been thought. And here we can make appeal again to the Bible. One of the most important and fundamental claims of the opening chapter of the book of Genesis is that God made the universe through great acts of speech. Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. We mustn't, of course, take these as somehow literal descriptions, but rather as symbolic gestures in the direction of the intelligence that informs the act of creation. In the prologue to his gospel, which consciously harkens back to the commencement of Genesis, John says, in the beginning was the word. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. Well, if everything came into existence through a word, everything is necessarily stamped by an intelligible form, an intelligent purpose. And this is why, according to Ratzinger and to a number of other commentators, it's not surprising that the modern physical sciences emerged precisely out of a culture shaped by this biblical imagination. If one believes in creation, one will readily make two assumptions necessary for the development of the sciences, namely that the world is not God and hence can be analyzed and experimented upon, and that the world is universally intelligible and hence likely to yield results to those who examine it intelligently. What I find particularly illuminating about this observation is how it makes clear that religion is not only not the enemy of science, but in fact the condition for its possibility. Well, we hope you enjoyed the first half of Bishop Barron's talk titled Knocking Holes in the Buffered Self. Again, we're going to share the second half of the talk in a couple weeks here on the Word on Fire show. In the meantime, I want to remind you to order your copy of our brand new Word on Fire Vatican II collection. It's a groundbreaking presentation of the four major documents of the Second Vatican Council, surrounded by commentary from Bishop Barron and the four post-Vatican II popes. It's beautifully and elegantly designed. I think you're really going to enjoy reading it. So pick up your copy at wordonfire.org slash Vatican II. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you guys next week on the Word on Fire show. Music